All right, everybody, welcome to another semester of Adult Sunday School. Um, I'm sure everyone's excited to be here. Um, I'm excited for us to be doing a study here in Christian theology for the next couple months. And uh, we're going to be studying theology from the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, which is a very helpful uh, tool for us to do this. So I thought we'd start off today with um, going over a little bit of the history of the catechism, and then starting on question one, and we are not going to finish question one, because uh, we're going to go uh, fairly in-depth in this class. That's going to be the plan to hopefully give us lots to think through and learn. And as we embark on this study, uh, let's ask uh, the Lord's blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us without direction in this world. You have given us the light of your word to direct our paths, to help us to see in this world where there is much confusion, there are many competing ideas, Lord. We thank you that we have your word to guide our hearts, to be as a compass to us. And we ask that as we look at the summary of the teachings of your word through this tool, that you will help us to know you better and to know better what you would have us do and how you would have us live in this world. So we ask your help and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, if you haven't been in one of my classes before, um, interaction is encouraged. If you have a question at any point, just raise your hand and I'll call on you. You don't have to wait to, uh, till an official questions asking time. Uh, I'm just going to probably go. I'll just be lecturing. And if you have a question, just let me know and we'll see what we can do about that. Sound good? Alrighty. Okay, let's start off with a bit of the history of this catechism. So, in the 1600s in England, it was a tumultuous time. The Reformed faith had been coming over to Great Britain, largely from Calvin's Geneva. And so what happens is you had Presbyterianism starting in Scotland. Uh, you had Anglicanism developing in England. And what happened in 1643, there was a document drawn up called the Solemn League and Covenant. And what this document was saying, it was the churches in Scotland and the churches in England saying, we want to come together and have a unified faith in all of Great Britain. And so their idea was that they would work together to harmonize the religion in the whole place, that there wouldn't be all these diverse peoples. And so part of this was going to be drawing up uh, doctrines and systems of theology that they could all unify around, right? They, they knew that church unity was important, and so they wanted to work towards that. So part of this was the calling of what they termed the Westminster Assembly. It was a group of um, a, a bit over 100 men, who were pastors and scholars, and they were tasked to come together to draft a confession of faith that the churches could say, hey, this is what we believe, but not just a confession of faith. They were tasked with developing teaching tools for the church. And so this Westminster Assembly met for, um, a, for a half dozen years or so, working on these different documents. They tasked various committees to take different aspects, and they worked hard to get this very exact and detailed, okay? And so part of this was a committee was formed to develop a catechism. And a catechism was simply, is simply a teaching tool that uses a question and answer format in order to instruct. And so it's helpful because by breaking things down into 
individual bytes, little questions, it makes it easier for people to learn. This was a pretty popular method at this time. There were a bunch of famous uh, catechisms. Calvin had made a catechism that was in use. Martin Luther made a catechism that was in use. Um, there was uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was also well known. And in the Westminster Assembly, there was well over a dozen men that had already created catechisms of their own for use in their churches. Because right, if you think before a day when most people didn't have books, many couldn't read, there was no internet, the main way to learn was by hearing from someone. So pastors would go around to different households and instruct the family in the catechism, um, a systematic, comprehensive summary of the Christian life, so they know, hey, if we're teaching through all these things, we're at least giving everyone in our congregation the basics of what they need to learn. And so this committee was tasked to make a catechism, and they really struggled making this catechism because they didn't know how to make it simple enough, but yet um, comprehensive enough to meet the needs of everybody. And so they ended up making a decision to make two catechisms, a shorter one and a longer one. Um, they said that this, they said it was difficult to have milk and meat in one dish. Uh, that's what they decided. And so in their own words, um, in comparing the shorter catechism to what we're looking at, the larger catechism, this larger catechism was to be a more exact and comprehensive catechism for those of understanding, those who have made some proficiency in the knowledge and grounds of religion. So the shorter catechism was to just be your basic starter pack, and the larger catechism was what you're supposed to graduate to, and as a mature Christian, this would be your primary tool for... Um, working through basically a manual of basic Christianity. And so the committee worked for five years. Once they decided to switch up and make two catechisms, the work went really quickly. And this wasn't just the product of one guy deciding what was in there. It was a work of committee. And they said every word was scrutinized. They were really working to be exact and careful in how they did this. And the whole work had to be approved then by the assembly. So, um, in the late 1640s, after this was completed, um, it was supposed to get ratified by the English Parliament to become the confession of the whole nation, and it didn't pass. It failed. However, it passed in Scotland. So, from this point on, the Scottish Church received all the documents of the Westminster Assembly to be the confession of their church the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechisms, and that is where Presbyterianism comes from. It's a Scottish um, iteration of Reformed theology, and that's why our church in the Presbyterian tradition holds to the Westminster documents as the standards of our church, because we're a church that has, um, at its history, Scottish Presbyterianism. And so ultimately the Act of Unity failed, but it was helpful for the Scottish church. Okay, what are the features of this catechism? Uh, how does it maybe differ than the other documents? Well, compared to the both confession and shorter catechism, the larger is more comprehensive. It covers more. It's a bit longer, more in depth. Uh, particularly compared to the confession, it's easier to understand. The confession used um, what was termed scholastic language. They were working more with um, a minute philosophical distinctions in their answers. And they also had a more, what you could call a polemical approach. That is, the confession was concerned to um, 
remove itself from Roman Catholic theology in particular. And so the larger catechism compared to the confession is much more systematic. It walks through in a more logical way all of the Christian life. Um, compared to the shorter catechism, this has a much more robust section of ethics. That is its exposition of the Ten Commandments, which is lacking entirely in the confession. So this detailed explanation of the Ten Commandments is one of the highlighted features of the larger catechism. It gives you many examples of what is prohibited and what is commanded in each of the Ten Commandments. Um, some think it's a little legalistic, and whether that be the case or not, it's helpful to have ideas of what sorts of things fall under the purview of the various commandments. Also, compared to the shorter catechism, the larger has a full section on the church and the means of grace. This is the biggest lack in the shorter catechism, and that's why I think it's sad that the shorter catechism has seen all the work and been almost only used and not the larger. There's almost nothing about the church in the shorter catechism. There's very little about the means of grace, and that's because it was meant to um, more focus on individual faith and salvation. It was for brand new beginners in the faith. And therefore, once they understood their response to the gospel, then it was time to start understanding the work and role of the church. So the larger catechism is really great for its section on the church and the means of grace. It divides itself into three sections. The first five questions are what are in theology termed prolegomena, which is the doctrine of the first things. So basically, before we want to learn anything, how do we even know how to learn anything? So it's kind of based on, we learn from the word of God. That's the foundation for everything. And then the catechism itself tells us that what does scripture teach us? It teaches us what we're to believe concerning God. And that's the first half of the catechism. Could all be under that umbrella of what are we to believe concerning God? And then the second half is, what is the duty God has required of man? So the whole catechism can basically be broken up into those three sections. First things, what we're to believe about God what duty God has required of man. Now, we're not going to quite use that division. I find a more helpful division, uh, just for teaching use, is I like to think of the larger catechism in three sections. The first section, what I would term Christian theology. The second section, which is the explanation of the Ten Commandments, we'll call Christian morality. It really gives us a system of morality. And then the last section, we'll term Christian spirituality, namely referring to our relationship with God, his word, faith, salvation, the means of grace, the church, all these things useful for cultivating our spiritual life. And um, anyway, so yeah, we're going to be focusing on Christian theology for this semester, and um, we'll, we'll see what's ahead in the future after that. Uh, any questions so far before I keep going? No? We're good. Okay. So as I alluded to, I do think that the larger catechism's been um, neglected to our own hurt over the years. It's been overshadowed by just, I think, the, the simplicity and brevity of the shorter catechism has been really, um, really nice. People like it. There's been dozens of commentaries written on the shorter catechism. 
And to this date, there's only been three commentaries published on the larger catechism. Uh, Thomas Ridgely did one in the 1700s. J.G. Voss did one in the early 1900s. And more recently, a Presbyterian pastor, Joseph Moorcraft, has published like a five-volume set, like 4,500 pages on it. But basically, you just have those three resources. Um, so it, it simplifies my job. I don't have to look up as many things uh, to try to find um, helpful things to pass on. And I'm hoping to be able to buy booklets for everybody of the confession, but or the catechism, rather. But the bookstore was sold out, so it is delayed. Alrighty, that's it for history. I know this isn't a history class, but I thought it might be helpful for us to get a bit of background. Alrighty, so we can look here at uh, question one, which you don't really need to see it because this is well known. But the question here is, what is the chief and highest end of man. Okay, that's, how this, that's the first question the larger catechism seeks to answer. What is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer given is that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. So you might notice just a couple little words added um, to that more well-known answer in the shorter catechism. Okay, and so just for... Um, Format-wise, here's what we're going to do. We're first going to try to understand the question. Okay, so we're going to exegete the question. Then we're going to look at some wrong answers to the question. And then we'll look at the right answer to the question. Okay? And I don't think we'll get through all this today, but we'll see. And again, if you have a question, uh, just throw up your hand. All right, so we're trying to understand this question. The writers are asking, what is the chief and highest end of man? Okay, so first let's consider what does it mean, the end of man? Okay, this is an older term. We're not talking about the end of life. We're not talking about finality and dying and such. When we're looking at an end, the end of life, what they're talking about is the purpose of life or the meaning of life. A, a key term here to understand is the term teleology. Teleology is the study of the telos, which was, this is a classical philosophical term used in looking at the, 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 the end which something is designed for. So teleology is studying what is the intention of a design. That is, what is the end for which this thing exists? Okay, so if we were going to ask, what is the chief end of a fork? You might say it is to stab, scoop, and transport food. Right? That's what the fork is designed for. That's its end, to stab, scoop, and transport food. And so this question that is really asking, in a sense, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And what a fitting question to start with. That's one of the most Googled questions. Everybody wants to know, what is the meaning of life? Right? And so why is this an important question to start off with? Why do we want to start off thinking about the meaning of life? Here's one reason I think this is important. It's because since the fall, we recognize that we live now in a world of sin and misery. We live in a world of acute suffering that is pronounced and unescapable. And this is important because the question of the meaning life is really the question of what makes life worth living. Uh, there's a well-known quote from the philosopher Camus who is famous for basically saying this, the only real question in philosophy is suicide. Why should I live at all? 
And he said, if you can answer the question of why shouldn't I kill myself, that is going to answer everything about life, why you should live. There's actually even a movement in the world today of philosophers who call themselves anti-natalists. That is, these are people who think that the world is such a terrible place filled with so much suffering that it's actually, it would be immoral to bring more humans into this world. That by bringing a child into this world, you're just bringing them into a life of suffering. And therefore, how evil and unkind do we have to be to actually allow people to experience this suffering? This is, this is a movement in philosophy that's current. But the question remains, life is suffering. It is a world of sin and misery. But the question of the meaning of life provides your motivation for living life. Because we, we know from many other examples that people can endure much hardship with the right motivations. Right? If someone is motivated enough to be healthy and strong, they'll push their body to the limits of lactic acid buildup and sweat and tiredness because they'll push through that pain for a higher motivation. Or, you know, think of parents. For the joy of raising children, willing to endure much sacrifice. We have a number of friends in this church right now who are enduring those sleepless nights with newborns, and they're willing to endure that hardship for a higher end. There's a meaning to it all. There's a goal in it all. And so the meaning of life really provides motivation for life. And that's a reason why this question is at the forefront of the catechism. Okay, we're asking what is the meaning of life? What is the end of man? And not the only end. It's important that we notice it says it's the chief and the highest end of man. So the implication here is not that this is the only thing that matters, but that it's the highest thing under which everything follows like an umbrella. Right? So if the end that's going to be given is the peak end, then everything underneath that would just be regarded as a lesser end, though they still might be ends. Right? Like if you're climbing up a mountain, your goal is the peak, but... In the near term, you might say, hey, in attaining that peak, right now we need to scramble up this little ridge line. Or right, right now we need to wade through this forest of alders. Right? There, there are still lesser ends, but they're all subservient to the chief and the highest end. Does that, does that make sense? Work for you guys? Okay, awesome. So this implies there's a rank ordering. There are lesser ends. And these lesser goals are always driven by higher goals. Um, it's almost, you know how children love to ask why, and then you answer the why, and there's just another why, but why this, but why this, but why this, until you end up at some place where you really can't go further. And it's usually something like, because that's the way God made it. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about your, our purpose, our meaning in life. There are lots of things that are a part of that, but once you keep rising up the ranks, you end with glorifying and enjoying God. And also note, we're looking at the chief and highest end of man, not the chief and highest end of a fork or a knife, but the chief and highest end of man. But I think this is interesting to think about, right? So if we were thinking about the chief and highest end of a knife, it might be to cut and slice well. That is, to really be a knife. If we're thinking of the chief and highest end of a bird, a bird's chief and highest end is to be a bird, to be as bird-like as the bird can be, to act in accordance with its nature. That's what we're talking about, acting in accordance with its nature. 
And so for a human to be living according to his chief and highest end, what we're thinking then is how is he acting most in alignment with human nature? The same thing holds true that the chief and highest end of a man is to act according to his nature as much as possible. So another way we could ask what the chief and highest end of man is, another way to phrase that question could be, what does it mean to be a true human? What does it mean to live as a true human in this world? Which implies living according to your design. And if we are going to live according to the design of our natures, what that means is that we need to know the designer. And we need to know how the designer has designed us to live. Which brings us back to the fundamental um, sections of the catechism. What are we to believe concerning God, the designer? And what duty has God required of man? That is, how has God designed us to live? So just as machines and gadgets work best when they're used according to their design, us as human beings will have the greatest meaning and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in life to the extent that we live according to the nature God has given us to inhabit. And that's why we can say that Jesus was the true man. Jesus was the truest man who ever lived because he perfectly lived into the way God designed human beings to function. And living according to that design is where the chief end and purpose of our existence is found. And so then we see how sin has really muddied the waters. And since the fall, we no longer live perfectly in accordance with the way God designed us, but we go after rebel lusts. We follow the dictates of our own mind. And it's like, um, you know, putting diesel fuel in a gasoline engine. It's no, it will no longer run properly. And so this world of suffering is really a result of us no longer living according to the true nature of humanity, no longer living perfectly for the ends to which we were created. Um, we'll, we'll leave that on that. Any questions on anything we've talked about so far or comments to add? Awesome, I guess I've just been so incredibly clear. You guys all ex exactly understand what we're talking about. Okay, so if we're looking at the meaning of life, what makes life tolerable? How do we find motivation to actually seek to thrive in a world of suffering? And we're trying to answer this question. I think it's helpful to consider how many others answer this question in society and in this world. Uh, it's helpful to understand our cultural um, milieu as it is. How are people answering this question? And on what philosophical um, worldview basis are they doing that? So first, I want us to consider what I've termed irreligious answers. Okay, These are answers, ways of trying to find or answering the question of what is the meaning of life that are based in this world. Okay, So non-afterlife-based answers. And three, you could say maybe four, but three worldviews really come to the fore. The first is the worldview of nihilism. And this worldview basically answers this question, there is no meaning to life. It's a, it's a materialistic view that says, we came from stardust, we returned to stardust, and to think that there's any more 
to human meaning than that is really just you're deceiving yourself. There is no meaning to life. And so how does the nihilist live in a world of suffering? Well, there often becomes a, um, um, a, an attachment to death. Often nihilistic worldviews celebrate and glorify death because it's often considered it's better to not exist than to exist. And so you escape suffering by ceasing to exist in this worldview, right? Because remember, the meaning of life gives you, it answers the question, how can you bear up under suffering? And the nihilistic view basically says you can't other than to die. Another more popular view is that of existentialism. Okay, the view of existentialism basically says you exist, so make the most of it. And this worldview says that you can create your own meaning for life. You can find fulfillment and happiness by living according not to the human nature God's designed, but who you feel you are. So the highest value here becomes living authentically. And the thought is that you will find meaning in life by living authentically, being who you are. You know, we think of that common idiom, you do you. And this is everywhere in our culture. It's the idea that you alleviate suffering by being true to yourself. Um, you, this is at the root of many popular um, just de debates and issues in our culture. Uh, there's an idea um, that would fit perfectly in here for those that are experiencing gender dysphoria, feeling like I'm in the wrong body, I'm not who I am on the inside. The thought is that I will alleviate my suffering from this dysphoria. I will find happiness by living according to who I feel on the inside. So if I feel like a woman on the inside, my suffering will be alleviated and I will find meaning by living according to that inner sense of myself, living authentically. And this could really be outletted in many other things that, well, this is what brings me joy and happiness, so I'm gonna do that. It's very extremely individualistic, which is why it's found a home in America particularly, a very individual-oriented society. And you see this in movies, it's that follow your heart thing, right? Follow your dreams. That is, suffering is alleviated as you create your own meaning in your life. We, uh, this is existentialism. Uh, thirdly, um, also really popular, is what we could term humanism. That the meaning of life is to promote the flourishing of all humanity. So this is the opposite of the previous. This is a more collective viewpoint, saying that we will escape suffering as we, um, in a sense, evolve out of it. And so often, those that have a humanistic view of this world are going to be very uh, prone to promote technology, that we'll escape the suffering of this world by building better technology. We'll, we'll solve the problems of world hunger. We'll solve the problems of disease and cancer. And we'll just keep progressing. And through our own human achievements, we'll end up in a world with less and less suffering. And so the meaning of life is basically to seek the good of humanity through technological and political processes. And again, we see this everywhere in our culture, the amount of hope people put into the political system to save humanity is extreme. Why are there such intense, volatile emotions and divisions around the issue of politics? It's because 
When you lose a conception of God and glorifying him as the meaning of life, you put your hope in worldly systems to reduce suffering. And the answer to the suffering in life is politics and technology. We'll just figure our own way out of these problems, which fundamentally misses the point that our suffering is due to sin. And we can't um, progress ourselves out of the sinful state of our hearts. And so no matter how great a nation is, sin always infects and sin always destroys. And so in each of these things, there's an element of truth here, but it's not getting at the core meaning of why we've been created and what we've been designed to do. Uh, Any questions on any of those three? Good. There's a fourth one. I didn't know what to call it, because I'm not sure if there's an actual term for it. But um, I'll try to not spoil it too much. But it's the worldview that comes up in Pixar's Soul, uh, which is one of the newest. It's the newest Pixar movie in December. And this, this movie, it presents a worldview that I've seen in a lot of other places. Um, but again, I don't know what to call it. But the basic idea here is that um, I'm not going to spoil anything too much, but there's a pre-existent soul that hasn't come into the world to become a baby yet, right? So it's a soul that isn't yet existing. And this soul does not want to go to earth and take a body because life is so much suffering. This soul's like, I see what goes on in that world. I don't want to go there. And the kind of conclusion at the end of it is that what makes life worth living What makes it worth it to take on a body that you then get the sufferings and pains and disappointments is that what makes life worth living is just life itself, just the joys of existence, just the snow falling down from the sky, eating a good meal, standing next to a friend, that just the fact of living and that there is some level of beauty and joy in the world, just life itself is its own meaning. You don't have to have any higher meaning than just it's a privilege to get to live. And that's also something that you'll hear much in our culture that you can, in a sense, alleviate suffering through mindfulness, through being grateful for the things of today, through just living in the present for seeking to disassociate your mind from your negative emotions. And this is also incredibly popular. Um, A lot of this does stem from uh, Buddhism, those kind of underpinnings, um, that just being mindful is the meaning of life. Okay, those are some irreligious answers. Let's consider some religious answers. Uh, These ones are largely afterlife-based, that what motivates us in life is some end that we're after at the end of life. Um, Consider, first of all, Hinduism. Uh, the end, the chief end of humanity in Hinduism is to achieve what they call moksha, which is very similar to the Buddhist nirvana. And this moksha is a transcendent escape from the cycle of rebirth, right? So they say you keep living, you reincarnate, and because life is suffering, the best thing you can do is to find a way to get out of this cycle of living altogether. And different strands of Hinduism say that the way to escape this cycle and achieve kind of perfect bliss, um, they've kind of developed different tra- traditions. One is called the Jnana tradition, which is that through knowledge and study, as you kind of become more and more learned, you can eventually poof out into the great beyond. Another one is the Bhakti way, which is by being devoted to a single god. 
as you devote yourself, give offerings and service to one particular God, eventually that God will love you enough or care about you enough to let you escape existence. And the third way we are probably more familiar with in the West is called the karma path, which is that by doing enough good deeds and doing your duty, you will eventually transcend beyond the state of this world into a state of perfect bliss, escaping suffering. This is really the Hindu answer to what's the meaning of life, to escape life and become one with the great beyond. Similarly is the um, answer of Buddhism, which is to achieve nirvana. The fundamental tenet of Buddhism is that life is suffering, and so you want to escape this suffering by achieving nirvana. And for them, this might not necessarily be some poofing off into the great beyond, but it's a fundamental separation from self. And by overcoming what they call ignorance and attraction or attachment to the things of this world, you can kind of escape your life while still in your life. You can kind of have your head in a different world and not even feel any of the suffering. Um, a, a third view might be that of um, Islam or other Christian cults, which posit some form of paradise or heaven as the end of existence. And uh, I actually, as I researched this, there's actually a, lo a lot of them came somewhat similar to what the answer we'd give here. You actually get a pretty diverse perspective on the meaning of life, whether it's to go to paradise or to become one with and to, to know Allah um, or to just purify yourself. There's a, there's a few different answers here. But again, the thing I want to point out in that all of these, they are all answering the question, how will we escape suffering? How can we bear up under suffering? Do we just bear it now to try to get somewhere else? Do we try to make the world around us better? Do we try to make ourselves better? What motivates you to work through a life of suffering? And so the Christian answer, which we're going to look at in more depth next week, or in two weeks, I'm going to be gone next week. You have there will be a surprise teacher. Um, the, the Christian answer is to glorify and enjoy God. Okay, glorifying and enjoying God. And all Christians should agree on this, although there are uh, disagreements on how we should go about glorifying and enjoying God. And so just uh, in conclusion today, I want us to look at a few ways that the Christian tradition has emphasized finding meaning in life that I think are inappropriately unbalanced one way or the other. And we might have all experienced these to different extents before we try to get the balance right. So how to glorify and enjoy God, how to live your meaning as a Christian. One answer given in Christian history was the answer of monasticism, that you will avoid suffering by physically removing yourself from the sinful world, going and living in a little religious enclave where you can just be as holy as possible and therefore most like God and escape suffering. Okay, the answer of monasticism is they want to find meaning in life by purity. There's also been the answer of mysticism. This developed later in the Middle Ages. And the answer of mysticism is that you escape this life of suffering. You find your meaning as a Christian through mystical experience and encounter with God. So really, every work is a necessary evil. The things of this life are all necessary evils. The main goal is just to be in a state of glorious rapture with God and to just experience his love and presence. And, you know, again, there, there are true elements of all of these. 
But these often have become in Christian history the highest end for the Christian. To be as pure and separate as possible, or to be as mystically, piously oriented as possible. Another one, as we come through, that we see um, really developing in America in the 17 and 1800s, is what I would call an emphasis on revivalism. Where the answer would be given that the chief and highest end of man is to go to heaven. This is what um, I largely grew up with, and I'm sure many of us did, that definitely the meaning and purpose of life is to go to heaven. Obviously, it's good to go to heaven. But when this is elevated as the chief and highest end of man, again, the hope then becomes just escape from this earth. Like many of those other worldviews, the point is just escape. There's nothing positively invigorating for this life now other than just get saved and get as many people saved as possible. Get that fire insurance so that you can escape suffering later on. This is the view of revivalism, which is really that you escape suffering through a categorical removal from this life to the next. Again, an element of truth, but this misses the, the core of life's meaning. Uh, fourthly, we could think of really a non-answer, which is the answer of liberalism, developing in the early 1900s, which basically reacted against all of these, being like, oh, what? Those monastics, they were just separate from this world. Those mystics, they were separate from the world in heaven. And these revivalists, they just care about salvation and not life now. Therefore, the meaning of life is not to focus on all those things, but to focus on the here and now, to just do good works and mercy. And the purpose of life then is kind of similar to that humanistic one, to make this world a better place and to alleviate suffering. It doesn't really matter if people know Jesus. It doesn't matter if they follow other gods as long as we work and show mercy. That's the answer that liberalism gives. And so over and against all these, I think the Westminster Larger Catechism outlines for us in total the best way to glorify and enjoy God, a way that is balanced with a proper blend of theology and spirituality and morality. Because we are holistic beings. We have minds, hearts, hands, wills, affections. And getting the balance of scripture right is so important to living a meaningful, purposeful life. We don't want to fall into any of these imbalances of just purity or piety or only good works. There's a harmonious balance between our, our head, our, our heart, our hands, our relationship with God, our relationship with this world, our relationship with the creation itself, and our relationship with our own hearts. And it's in living properly in each of these relationships, the upward, the downward, the outward, and the inward, that this path of glorifying and enjoying God is best charted. So, We've, we've looked at um, some history of the catechism, uh, what this question is, and then some wrong answers. And next time we will look at what is the right answer. What does it actually mean to glorify and enjoy God? These sort of highfalutin terms that we say a lot, but do we really understand what they mean? To glorify and fully to enjoy God forever. So, so that's where we'll, we'll pick up next time. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do recognize that we see so many worldviews competing all around us, and uh, we admit that often our hearts get drawn to erroneous ways of thinking. 
we easily get trapped in just pursuing things in this material world, or we get stuck on simply pursuing things in the spiritual world, and we often are not balanced in the ways we think about life. So we ask for your forgiveness and your help to be able to recognize um, and to reject every idea that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ, that we would be enabled to be discerning in a pluralistic age, to see where there are false gospels being taught, and where even we are, are um, implicitly imbibing the views of this world. Lord, so guard our hearts against us, grant, that, grant us the shield of faith, and help us to be a people marked by the truth of your word for the glory of Christ in this world, as we come and pray these things in his name. Amen.